Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Will Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Shannon Falconer, CEO and co-founder of Because Animals, the only company developing cultivated meat for pets. Shannon holds a master's degree in biochemistry, a PhD in chemical biology, and worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University prior to co-founding Because Animals in 2016. Because Animals is a small company with a big mission to make the most sustainable and nutritious food for dogs and cats on the planet without ever harming any animals or the environment. Because Animals is creating this revolutionary product for cats and dogs using cultivated meat instead of meat that comes from slaughtered animals. Here's my conversation with Shannon Falconer. Shannon Falconer from Because Animals, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Nell. I'm really happy to be here. I am so fascinated by everything that you're doing at Because Animals, because um, for all of us who have adopted animals, who have companion animals, we are constantly trying to figure out what is the right and wrong way to feed our beloved animals that we share our homes with but we know so little about the details of that industry. And so I've tried to do my research, but I'm still super confused about what is the state of the pet food industry and which brand should I trust and not. Maybe that would be a good place to start. From your perspective, what's wrong with pet food today? Well, I will just start by saying you are not alone if you are feeling confused or, or um, unsure about pet food. Um, I've now been in the industry for five years and there's still a lot of things that I'm very confused about. Uh, transparency in pet food is, um, it's opaque. So I, what's wrong with pet food? So there, there are a number of things on different levels. So to begin with, let's, yeah, let's start with our pets. So what is wrong with pet food specifically for our cats and dogs? The majority of pet food is made from something called um, 4D meat or animals that come from, um, or sorry, it's meat that comes from animals that are dead, disease, dying, or disabled. Uh, the industry, the pet food industry doesn't like that term. Um, and so instead they use something called, they refer to as fallen animals. So these are also animals that die during transit or um, due to disease or dehydration, suffocation. And basically what it means is any animal that doesn't actually make it to slaughter, but dies for any reason before that, it cannot be sold for human consumption. 
So these animals are this, this flesh, these carcasses are then used for pet food. In addition to these fallen animals or 4D meat, there's also the other 50% of the animal that humans just don't want to eat. Uh, all of that meat is also shunted to pet food. And so, so these, at this point, these, these carcasses or this meat is, it tends to be heavily contaminated. Um, and so it's sent to something called a rendering facility. And at this rendering facility, the, this meat is subjected to very high heats and pressures, which uh, they sterilize the meat. So it, it does by and large kill the pathogens. Um, it also ends up uh, basically depleting the meat of virtually all of the essential nutrients that were in there, which is why vitamins and minerals have to be added back to the meat. But in any case, this, uh, this processed meat is then used, it's blended with other ingredients to make a kibble or a wet food pate. So the problem though comes when, for instance, there are recalls due to bacterial or chemical contamination. So bacterial, um, this often happens with uh, in, in raw food um, or chemical contamination. So the FDA has on numerous occasions recalled food due to contamination by something called pentobarbital. And pentobarbital is a euthanizing agent, an animal euthanizing agent. Pentobarbital is not used to euthanize cows or chickens or pigs because the way that it's used, it, it's lethal to all animals, not just that, those species. So, um, so pentobarbital is used to euthanize horses, cats, dogs. Somehow at various points, um, pentobarbital has gotten into the pet food supply chain and it has resulted in pets becoming very, very sick or dying. So, the problems with pet food are that um, it's risky, uh, risky in terms of bacterial chemical contamination. Um, because supplements, these nutrients have to be added back to the food. It has also resulted in um, the inappropriate amounts of nutrients being added back to the food. So recalls also exist due to, for example, excess vitamin D being added back to the food. So this is problematic. Um, and um, and then the other argument is, well, you know, these by and large, because they're dehydrated, the kibbles, they're not, there's no moisture. So especially when we think about cats that are uh, desert animals and they, they're sort of programmed not to drink. Um, they only really get their moisture from uh, eating a whole animal. When they're eating kibble that contains zero moisture, this is really, really hard on, on their, anatomically, this is very, this is very difficult for cats and, and can result in things like um, kidney disease. So, so pet food, the current diets we are feeding our pets, full stop, it's, it's just, it's not ideal at, to say the least. So that's the problem with pet food with respect to pets. Then there's the problem with pet food with respect to everything else. And so um, a recent study, actually some researchers, a researcher out of UCS, uh, UCLA uh, recently showed that more than a quarter of the environmental effects of the animal agriculture industry in terms of deforestation, uh, water and fossil fuel use is directly attributed to the foods that Americans feed their cats and dogs. So this is between 25 and 30%. I mean, this is a huge amount, right? Um, and so we, we as humans, you know, we tend to be very fixated on the problem being, okay, humans are the main consumers of animal-based products. Therefore, humans, we, we need to overhaul or change the food supply chain for humans. And that's true. But 30% that is uh, that pet food is responsible for, nonetheless, this is a total white space in the industry, virtually 
nobody's really doing anything to move the needle in terms of how we're actually going to feed pets a more sustainable diet. Um, in, or, in order for us to actually overcome this, you know, very, very, uh, this monumental problem with respect to animal agriculture and uh, the environmental devastation that it's having, we have to address pet food. Um, and it's just not happening on any kind of wide scale. You know, just so that I understand, why is it that the quality of the food is so poor? It's usually these, um, as they call it, fallen animals. Is it purely because of cost? It allows them to obtain uh, animals that are not going into the human food supply chain and and then reuse it at a lower cost for pet food. And and I'm assuming that's, when you say that, that's just the majority of pet food, but there might be some exceptions, I'm assuming, out there, right, to this? Of course there are. It is, uh, it is the vast majority of pet food, um, but there are exceptions and there are increasingly there are companies that are focused on human grade meat for for pets so these would be this is meat that actually is yeah it's a direct um you can say it competes directly with the human food supply chain so so a couple of things if if i if i just back up for a moment when i was thinking about starting this company and you know whether or not pet food actually would move the needle in terms of taking animals out of the supply chain because a lot of people have made the argument that ah but pet food is just made with the leftovers of of the animal agriculture industry so um and in fact we can think about it as a sustainable practice um so and and the national renderers association so that rendering facility they have an association <laughs> the the NRA, the National Renderers Association, um, and they've they make the argument this is a sustainable practice because what they said, um, and I, I'm using their statistics, the 25 million tons of carcass that basically make its way to a rendering facility every year. This is just the U.S. and Canada alone. In the absence of being able to sell all of this otherwise unsellable meat to pet food, not only would the animal agriculture industry now not be able to profit from making this this money, it would actually have to pay to have that meat disposed of as biohazardous waste. And within four years, all of the landfills in the United States would be full from these purposes of biohazardous waste. So it is an entirely, it is entirely not sustainable um, for us to actually not feed our pets this otherwise unsellable meat. And so what this also means consequently is that the animal agriculture industry as we know it could simply not exist in the absence of the pet food industry, full stop. That's so funny. I mean, it's it's firstly the the fact that they that, that they make a sustainability argument is is uh, is quite hilarious. But it's also, it, I mean, I just it shows how little I know about the space. But I thought you were going to say food waste and how they're making an upside. And I guess they are to a certain extent saying that they're providing a upcycling solution. You're saying by virtue of offering a sustainable alternative, you inadvertently now directly impacting animal agriculture that exists for the purposes of the human food supply chain. And so that's, that's, I would have never yeah. thought of that. I always thought, yeah, I was trying to understand like who's going to be, what is being replaced, which industry is being impacted. And I think it's all interconnected at the end of the day with most things yeah. in the food system. Right. And so, um, it just this seems like this the the rendering facilities and their uh, business has just um, come out of a opportunity from uh, 
that that is connected to waste from the industrial animal agriculture industry. So super fascinating. Let's get into uh, because animals. So I mean, of course, I I totally get it. All the multiple reasons why you you see the problem. Um, when you were thinking about how you wanted to um, play a role in addressing this problem and scope, you know, looking at the landscape of solutions out there, why did you land upon what you decided? So maybe you just tell us a little bit more about because animals, how it got started, and what your current focus is. So, um, yeah, I, I grew up with three dogs, three cats. Uh, I developed a really close relationship with my pets at a young age. Um, I think I, I definitely felt more of a connection with, with uh, non-two-legged animals than I did two-legged ones. Uh, and so for this reason, I stopped eating meat in my very, very early teens. I started volunteering at um, uh, animal uh, shelters in my late teens. And then, and then that continued volunteering for um yeah, a number of animal rescue organizations throughout my adulthood. Um, and then that was, that was just sort of the one thing I, I did. And so, and I was fostering, um, I had lots, I can't even, I can't actually count how many foster cats I've had come through my door. Um, and then my own cats and dogs. Um, and then, but I'm a scientist by training. So, so I have a master's and a PhD in biochemistry and, um, and th- th- that was just separate. So, you know, I love science and I would spend the day at the bench and, and then evenings doing and weekends associated with um, animal welfare stuff. And I didn't ever see the opportunity for those two worlds to come together. Like, why would they? How would they? And then I was working um, as a postdoc at Stanford University. And it was there, it was sort of at that point in my career where I was looking at as a somebody in the biomedical community, um, I really sort of did have to come face to face with the reality that I was on the wrong side of the line in terms of what I was doing. Um, because inadvertently, if you're a bio, if you're a biomedical researcher, your, your experiments or your results are somehow they're going to be used on animals. Um, and I, w- I was just, I was deeply uncomfortable with my colleagues who were working on animals. And so, um, yeah, it was at that point I said, forget it. I'm pulling the plug on my and staying sort of within academia or, or pursuing a pharmaceutical career. Uh, I'm going to use my scientific training to take animals out of the supply chain rather than keep them in. And in thinking about how I could potentially do this, uh, yeah, that certainly, um, certainly the food supply chain was, was the one that um, resonated the most. And of course, at first I thought that it would be, I would focus on something related to human food because as we talked about, humans are the main consumers of animal-based products. But then as I started thinking about it, like, gosh, but, you know, I, I live a really good life and I'm not wanting for anything and I haven't eaten meat for decades. And, um, but the problem that I have is that I kind of, I kind of am forced to um, still support this industry because I have all these either pets, uh, like rescue pets or my own pets. And so then I started thinking about, okay, meat for, um, you know, is there a way that we could potentially, how can I, how can I avoid this? Um, and, uh, and then digging into all those things that we just talked about. Um, and that convinced me like, oh yeah, of course. Uh, if, if there's any way to disrupt um, the animal agriculture industry, you know, everybody, all of these amazing people are working on human food and they've got to, but unless somebody addresses the pet food, um, nothing is going to change. And that's why I decided to focus on pet food. Uh, where are you now in the process of turning Because Animals into uh, the company you want it to be? I know you're, you're in your early stages, but you've also been at this for a few years now. 
Um, mm-hmm. What products do you sell today, and what it is that you're? What's your your big moonshot opportunity you're looking at? Yes. So we are making cultured meat for pet food. So cultured meat is not a meat alternative. So we are not creating a meat alternative for pets. We are creating meat. We are simply producing it in an alternative way. Um, And so for us, that means culturing it. So our first products, we do have a couple of products on the market right now. Um, They are made with not meat, not cultured meat, but other cultured products. So we have a probiotic-based supplement, one for cats, one for dogs, uh, some nutritional yeast-based cookies. And so we're using these other cultured ingredients to familiarize and to basically introduce people to what cultured meat actually is. Um, And so these other ingredients that people already recognize the health benefits of, and they love them for both themselves and and their pets, um, actually they're grown in a way inside a bioreactor, you know, inside that is fed with the nutrients that either the bacteria or the yeast need to grow and, and divide. We then grow the meat in the same way. It's just that we're now using an animal cell. So ultimately, although we are not, we don't have a commercial product on the market yet, cultured meat for pets, um, we do, we have just recently, actually last month um, in August, uh, we announced at SuperZoo, which is the largest um, pet food uh, sort of uh, trade show in the world, um, we have made our cultured mouse cat cookies and, and it's done. Um, and so now we're really just working on the scaling part. I'll say we're making mouse um, because this throws a lot of people off initially until they actually sort of, oh yeah. So mouse being the ancestral diet of the cat, right? So in the wild, cats eat mice, they eat small birds and the insects. Although chicken, beef, um, seafood are the main ingredients in pet food, they are also the main allergens for our cats and dogs. So we are just feeding them those foods or protein sources because that's what's left over from the human food supply chain. But evolutionarily speaking, um, that's, you can argue it's not necessarily appropriate for our pets. So, so we're focused on mouse for cats. Um, and so, yeah, this moonshot um, that's becoming increasingly with every, every day, uh, less of a moonshot and, and more of a reality, it will be a cultured mouse-based food for cats. And then um, following that, eventually a cultured rabbit for dogs. When you say cultured mouse uh, food for cats and potentially rabbit for dogs down the line, what percentage of the foods that you will create will actually include the the cultured uh, meats versus uh, other supplements and nutrition that's added on to it? So, um, well, you know, I guess the beauty of pet food is that you don't have to the, – the animals don't care what the food looks like or that maybe they do care about texture. Uh, who knows? I think my dog is very picky about texture of food as well. But, um, you know, when it comes to human food, you're always trying to replicate what the real thing looks like. But in this case, animals are used to, at least our, our, our pets are generally used to consuming foods that do not replicate what those meats are in, in, in the wild, right? Or what would have been ancestrally for them. Um, so it does allow your path to um, market it does allow you to kind of accelerate your path to market, but it doesn't mean you're not without challenges. So because it is a very still an expensive, hard business, I'm sure. Um, so back to the question in terms of what percentage of it will actually include cultured meat and how do you see that evolving from a cost standpoint as well? 
Yeah, yeah, no, great, great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked. So initially with our cultured mouse, cat cookie, one of the reasons why, a few reasons why we started with a cookie as opposed to nutritionally complete food. Um, but one of them is because, um, yeah, scaling is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for Because Animals and it's going to be a challenge for every other cultured meat company. It's going to be a challenge for the first little while, like the first few years. Um, but once the infrastructure is there, then scaling, then it won't be problematic. But in that, um, in that, these early stages, we want to be able to get the product out, but we aren't going to have enough to actually make cultured meat the first ingredient, which we will do once we have the food out. Um, so, but a treat, you know, a treat is an in-between meal snack. It's it's not it's not intended to be nutritionally complete. So, for our treat, we will um, that treat will contain 10% of cultured meat at the outset and uh, for, for the, just the treat. And then of course, as we continue to scale, we continue to bring down the cost of our, uh, of the ingredient um, and are able to make more of it, we can increase that percentage. But yes, yeah, so at a minimum though, it will be 10%. And from a cost standpoint, you know, the big challenge is going to be you're competing against uh, an industry uh, or in an industry that has, as we discussed earlier, has found ways to obtain basically discarded raw materials and turn that into end products that they make massive profits out of. Your model is obviously going to be a lot more different. You're not you're not going to have the benefit of that low cost ingredient, right? So I guess you probably, I'm assuming, would introduce your products as a, as a high end, a premium product. Uh, with the hopes that as you scale up, and I'm and I'm, I'm kind of answering your question, but I'd love your yeah, love your take on where you see this. You know, what's the reasonable timeline around all of this? Like, when am I going to be feeding our my dog uh, uh, an entire meal made of cultured, uh, uh, say, cultured beef or any other product that potentially would work for my dog? Well, I would love to say um, I would love to say that you would be feeding your dog um, cultured rabbit um, in four years' time. Um, you know, I don't know that that's absolutely the reality, but um, I would love to say that that's that's definitely what we're pushing for. Uh, in terms of cost, though, so the interesting thing is that so the pet food market or the pet food industry, rather, uh, the it's only the premium and ultra premium sections of the market that are continuing to grow. Um, of course, as humanization continues to take off and as more and more people think of their pets as like, you know, their children. I mean, so like me, I don't have any two-legged children, only four-legged children. You know, the, the pet food industry is much more similar, actually, from a market perspective to the baby food industry than it is to the human food industry. You know, we are the caregivers of our cats and dogs, and we are um, we are constantly looking for something that's better. Um, and so, so people want to be people want to be spending more on their pets because they expect um, they want better quality for their pets. So we will be marketing uh, or we will be selling in that premium ultra premium category still. Although um, meat is a, yeah, this, this meat is very, very inexpensive for the, the industry. Um, the margins in pet food are not the same as the margins in the human food industry. Um, and it's why a lot of investors love pet food because the margins are very, very generous. So even though the industry can buy the, that meat for very cheap, um, the food that whole bag of kibble, for example, it's, it's not, it's, um, that cost is not passed on to the customer. Um, it's just the margins are very, very good. So, um, at, at the, in the early days, as we're sort of in that premium, ultra premium category, um, yeah, I would say our margins are not going to be typical of those really big, uh, pet food companies in terms of the ones that are using this, um, these fallen animals. 
um, but probably more similar to margins that one would see in the human food industry. But this is also the beauty of, you know, of, of biotechnology. And as we continue to understand more um, and just get better at being able to grow um, uh, ourselves or our meat at a lower price point because we're reducing our internal costs, then we can continue to bring the, the cost down. And what safety concerns uh, should uh, we keep in mind here? I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, are, are possibly fascinated by this idea that we could we could have a future where we don't have to feed our uh, beloved animals the same the, the food that come, that is reliant on the same destructive system that we are all trying to hopefully transform with our food choices as well as with uh, some of these solutions technolo- technological solutions to the food system. Um, where, like, to what extent is safety testing a, a big part of this? And I, I'm assuming this is such a, and I've talked to others in this space, so I do know that there's some work being done, but most of it seems to be focused on, you know, human consumption of, of cultured mm-hmm. meats. Uh, mm-hmm. To what extent is safety a big issue when it comes to pet food as, in general? Obviously, we're not doing a very good job today <laughs> with our general pet food. So how are mm. you going to take, you know, lead the way with a, maybe creating a new industry? Right. So we are, um, we, we will hold ourselves to the same standards that all of the cultured meat companies within the human sphere hold themselves to, or, or are held to by any external body. Um, first I want to address though, the safety concerns, like aside from the, aside from the bacterial and chemical contamination in the meat that we feed our animals, never mind just meat that we feed our animals. Let's just look at animal based meat. Um, and, you know, so 80% of the antibiotics manufactured in the United States are sold to the animal agriculture industry. So virtually all farmed animals, almost all farmed animals are actually um, being fed these uh, sub sub therapeutic doses of antibiotics um, because they, those antibiotics help them actually sort of beef up and become fatter. The challenge though, is that the world is actually facing um, this a crisis in terms of antibiotics. And, and we're talking about um, public health, human public health. Um, and before COVID, the WHO was making a lot of noise about actually this sort of post-antibiotic era that we're entering into as being potentially one of the, you know, the most devastating things that um, we will see, uh, that the human health industry will see um, uh, in the last hundred years. Um, and so, uh, but then COVID sort of, uh, yeah, took over. But the, the point being that the antibiotics that are fed to livestock that then are excreted, um, the manure then infiltrates the water system, and then this becomes com- antibiotic-resistant bacteria become totally ubiquitous. Um, this is hugely problematic. All of the, 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 for us, making cultured meat, we don't use any antibiotics, um, nor do we actually end up with a scenario where our meat might be, for example, uh, containing some kind of fecal pathogen. So like 100% of meat pulled off of supermarket shelves and tested resulted in culturing out actual fecal bacteria, right? And you can, it's, it's easy to see why. I mean, these livestock are raised in shit and then they're slaughtered in shit and then that just gets passed on. So in culturing meat, it's, there's no, there's no immune system. We can absolutely see if there is any kind of contamination, bacterial, fungal, whatever that blossoms immediately. We still, we could see it and we would kill the culture. So our meat is pure from the perspective of both. It's free of antibiotics. It's free of bacteria. 
The other thing with an animal is that, um, you know, an animal is a very, very complex being. And even though it's not permitted to, for animals that are known to have, say, for example, you know, to be have cancer, it's not allowed to sell any cancerous tumors uh, or cancerous meat into the human food supply chain. Of course, we know that, that, of course, there will be cancerous cells. There will be cancerous elements to an animal. Um, there are cancerous cells that are, that will be there that will be passed into the meat. For us, so it's a heterogeneous blend, right, of both sort of, we can say, native animal cells and cancerous animal cells. For us, we are working with, um, with a homogeneous cell type. There are no cancerous cells in the meat that we're growing. So from this perspective, we can say, you know, we know what the inputs are. We know what the outputs are. Those don't change from day to day, from, from sort of um, manufactured uh, one bioreactor of, of meat to the, to the next. It is the same. This cannot be said for an animal. So I think, you know, when we think about safety, yeah, it's, it's totally reasonable. We do need to uh, cross all of our T's, dot all of our I's, ask all the questions that we need to, but we also have to put this in the framework and within the context of what the alternative is um, and where the meat that we're eating or we're feeding our pets is coming from and all of the different sources of potential hazards that are there. And for us to sort of then double down on cultured meat and say, ah, but you know, this we're, we're producing it in a, in a manufacturing facility. Well, actually, you know, that actually comes with a lot of benefits because many, many more knowns, um, than what you would be getting otherwise. Yeah, I think you're right on that front. I I think we we really um you know, we are at this stage where we need to act quickly to address the problems with our food system and we we sort of uh, the 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 good the good news is that the system we're trying to replace is so terrible at so many fronts <laughs> that you can do even yes. mar if you do marginally better, it's it's it, <laughs> right. you may see it's not really a marginal improvement. It turns out to be actually a giant leap. And in, in your case for sure, what you're doing technologically is a giant leap. Um I know it's the very early days of this industry as well as your company. Um and I and I'm gonna close out with a very forward looking question. Uh if every, I wouldn't say if, when you succeed as a company and when uh, cultured pet food is the norm, um, if you had to look ahead to the year 2050, what do you imagine um, you can say? You, know, you can answer it broadly in terms of the food system, but more specifically about pet food. What do you see the world looking like in, in 2050 if we're able to uh, transform this industry and uh, get rid of this destructive uh, animal agriculture system that we are inadvertently reliant on for pet food and also currently for human food? Mm -hmm. um, well, I would love to say come 2050 that, um, that the entire animal agriculture industry would be completely overhauled and would no longer exist. I don't think that that will be the case in 2050. I think it will be the case eventually just because whether people like it or not, uh, we just can't keep going the way that we're going. Um, we'll run out of space. Uh, our earth is only so big. So uh, I don't think that that will happen by 2050. Um, so I do see many, many more companies um, uh, being successful in terms of plant-based or microbial-based or cultured meat-based foods um, for humans and pets. Um, yeah, I, I don't see it as a 
hundred percent by 2050, but, but certainly more than today. Well, you're definitely helping us get there quicker. This is much needed and I can't wait to follow your journey, see where it goes. So Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. No, I, I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.